Gary Ducher is a linguist and honorary researcher at the University of Manchester. He is the author of Through the Language Glass, Why the World Looks Different in Other Languages, and The Unfolding of Language. In his books, Dr. Ducher attempts to set the record straight about our tendencies to underestimate, as well as overestimate, the power that language has on our thinking. He writes and speaks widely about language, culture, and thought. And as I begin, I turn the page and I look at this small print right underneath his name of this article we're going to be reading called, Does Your Language Shape How You Think? And it reminds me of how important it is to think about where these things were published, who they were published for in terms of the audience, and the time period as well. You see that this was published in the New York Times. So it would have been widely read, and it was in 2010. Now, sometimes you can look up things that happen, and the uh, U.S. Census Bureau has a fast fact kind of element for some of the work they do. And when you, if you want to pause for a little bit and think about what happened with uh, that time period, it was uh, just a hint. It was the Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg, was named as the person of the year by Time magazine. You can also find out different historical events, pop culture, prices of things, and events that were major during that time period. A lot of times these will be a reference to some of the things that the author is thinking about at that time. So here we go. 70 years ago, in 1940, a popular science magazine published a short article that set in motion one of the trendiest intellectual fads of the 20th century. Okay, so I'm curious already. I'm wondering, um, you know, what's going to be trending in fashion is not necessarily the same thing as trending for intellectualism. At first glance, there seemed to be little about the article to augur its subsequent celebrity. Neither the title, Science and Linguistics, nor the magazine, MIT's Technology Review, was most people's idea of glamour. And the author, a chemical engineer who worked for an insurance company and moonlighted as an anthropology lecturer at Yale University, was an unlikely candidate for such international superstardom. And yet, Benjamin Lee Worf let loose an alluring idea about language's power over the mind, and his stirring prose seduced a whole generation into believing that our mother tongue restricts what we are able to think. Oh, now you have to think sometimes and push against the text. Do you believe that the language you speak restricts how you're able to think? I don't know. I want to say no, but it is turning out to be quite persuasive already. In particular, Worf announced Native American languages impose on their speakers a picture of reality that is totally different from ours. Oh, how so, I begin to wonder. So their speakers would simply not be able to understand some of our most basic concepts. Really? Like the flow of time or the distinction between objects like stone and actions like fall. I'm afraid I don't understand yet, nor do I believe.
For decades, Worf's theory dazzled both academics and the general public alike. In his shadow, others made a whole range of imaginative claims about the supposed power of language, from the assertion that Native American languages instill in their speakers an intuitive understanding of Einstein's concept of time as a fourth dimension, to the theory that the nature of the Jewish religion was determined by the tense system of ancient Hebrew. By grammar? Hmm. Eventually, Worf's theory crash-landed on hard facts and solid common sense when it transpired that there had never actually been any evidence to support his fantastic claims. Oh, that's, that's rich. So he said these things and did never have any evidence of them. That's shocking. The reaction was so severe that for decades, any attempts to explore the influence of the mother tongue on our thoughts were relegated to the loony findings of a disrepute. But 70 years on, it is surely time to put the trauma of Worf behind us. Okay, so he's transitioning. He wasn't respected for those ideas, and it really caused a lot of people not to be able to understand. But now, 70 years later, it's time to really think about what's happening with this. Now, what you'll see that happened just now, I'm reading against the text. I'm disagreeing with the author, or I'm being a little bit skeptical. Sometimes that's a really good mind frame to read from. Also, you notice that at the top of page 15, I stopped to just kind of summarize when I noticed that the author was shifting to a different point. And I really do find that a lot of times that but word, whenever we see that or yet, those things are really triggers for us that we ought to really stop and think about what happened before and how it's contrasting with the ideas that are coming next. So, but 70 years on, it is surely time to put the trauma of Wharf behind us. And in the last few years, new research has revealed that when we learn our mother tongue, we do, after all, acquire certain habits of thought that shape our experience in significant and often surprising ways. So as we learned before, sometimes when we're reading, we stop and make connections to self. And I remember thinking some of these thoughts similarly about the difference between how... Um, a Spanish speaker would describe a pretty girl. We say pretty, the adjective first, and then girl. So it seems like sometimes there's a privilege on the adjective that we are valuing the prettiness first. But yet whenever we have Spanish, the infinite it would say um, girl and then bonita, which means pretty. And so the emphasis with in terms of what order it is in, the girl is more important than the characteristic that describes her. So I'm wondering if that order of the language changes how people thought about uh, and valued things like beauty. Worf, we know now, we now know, made many mistakes. The most serious one was to assume that our mother tongue constrains our minds and prevents us from being able to think such certain thoughts. The general structure of his arguments was to claim that if a language has no word for a certain concept, 
then speakers would not be able to understand this concept. If a language has no future tense, for instance, its speakers would simply not be able to grasp the notion of a future time. It seems barely comprehensible that this line of argument could ever have achieved such success, given that so much contrary evidence confronts you whenever, you, wherever you look. And I'd have to say in my own experience, just because I don't know what the word is doesn't mean I don't understand the concept. When you ask in perfectly normal English and in the present tense, are you coming tomorrow? Do you feel your grip on the notion of futuricity, futurity slipping away? No, I don't. Do English speakers who have never heard of the German word schadenfreude, and I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, find it difficult to understand the concept of relishing someone's misfortune? Oh, I think that I can understand that without knowing that word ever before. Or think about it in this way. If the inventory of ready-made words in your language determined what concepts you were able to understand, how would you ever learn anything new? I think he's making some good points there. I agree. Since there is no evidence that any language forbids its speakers to think anything, we must look in an entirely different direction to discover how our mother tongue really does shape our experience of the world. So he's discredited Worf, and now he's moving on to how else can we understand the impact of the mother tongue. Some 50 years ago, a renowned linguist, Roman Jacobson, pointed out a crucial fact about differences between languages in a pithy maxim. Languages differ essentially in what they must convey and not in what they may convey. So I also want to point out, again, we've talked about this in some of the other things that we've read. These quotations that are added in there are really important to pay attention to, but a lot of times they're a little bit pithy, and you need to think a little bit about what they mean. So feel free to pause and reread that quote to figure out what you think it means. Languages differ essentially in what they must convey and not in what they may convey. This maxim offers us the key to unlocking the real force of the mother tongue, which is this. So that's what that little colon means right there. It's giving the answer to the previous. If different languages influence our minds in different ways, this is not because of what our language allows us to think, but rather because of what it habitually obliges us to think about. Consider this example. Suppose I say to you in English that I spent yesterday evening with a neighbor. You may well wonder whether my companion was male or female, but I have the right to tell you politely that it's none of your business. But if we were speaking French or German, I wouldn't have the privilege to equivocate in this way because I would be obliged by the grammar of language to choose between voisin, uh, I can't pronounce those, voisin or voisin, nachbar or nachbarin. 
These languages compel me to inform you about the sex of my companion, whether or not I feel it is remotely of your concern. This does not mean, of course, that English speakers are unable to understand the differences between evenings spent with male or female neighbors, but it does mean that they do not have to consider the sexes of neighbors, friends, teachers, and a host of other persons each time they come up in a conversation, whereas speakers of some languages are obliged to do so. On the other hand, well, I just have to stop and say, I, I have found it difficult to understand and remember all the genders whenever I'm learning Spanish or French. Um, and I, it, never, it was kind of a weird thing to think about la tabla, whether it was female or male, it doesn't, just didn't seem to matter to me. On the other hand, English does oblige you to specify certain types of information that can be left to the context in other languages. Okay, so this is kind of an opposite. If I want to tell you in English about a dinner with my neighbor, I may not have to mention the neighbor's sex, but I do have to tell you something about the timing of the event. I have to decide whether we dined, have been dining, or are dining, will be dining, and so forth. Chinese, on the other hand, does not oblige its speaker to specify the exact time of the action in this way, because the same verb form can be used for the past, present, or future actions. Again, this does not mean that the Chinese are unable to understand the concept of time, but it does mean they are not obliged to think about timing whenever they describe an action. When your language routinely obliges you to specify certain types of information, so now at this point, he's given us the examples. Now we're moving into the part about why it matters. When your language routinely obliges you to specify certain types of information, it forces you to be attentive to certain details in the world and to certain aspects of experience that speakers of other languages may not be required to think about all the time. And since such habits of speech are cultivated from the earliest age, it is only natural that they can settle into habits of mind that go beyond language itself, affecting your experiences, perceptions, associations, feelings, memories, and orientation of the world. But is there any evidence for this happening in practice? So now what he's going is those examples, the, the theory, the theoretical, the hypothetical. And now he's going to go deeper into um, more information about what it really looks like in practice or in real life. Let's take the genders again. Languages like Spanish, French, German, and Russian not only oblige you to think about the sex of friends and neighbors, but they also assign a male or female gender to a whole range of inanimate objects, quite at a whim. What, for instance, is particularly feminine about a Frenchman's beard? La barbe, I guess. Why is Russian water a she? And why does she become a he once you have dipped a tea bag into her. Gosh, those things frustrate me so much. I can't imagine trying to keep track of which 
pronoun to use with those terms. Mark Twain famously lamented such erratic genders as the female turnips and neuter maidens in his rant, the awful German language. I haven't read that. I think I might have to look at that. But whereas he claimed that there was something particularly perverse about the Ger German gender system, it is, in fact, English that is unusual, at least among European language, in not treating turnips and teacups as masculine or feminine. Languages that treat an inanimate object as a he or she force their speakers to talk about such an object as if it were a man or woman. And as anyone whose mother tongue has a gender system will tell you, once the habit has taken hold, it is all but impossible to shake off. It is impossible to shake off. When I speak English, I may say about a bed that it is too soft. But as a native Hebrew speaker, I actually feel she is too soft. She stays feminine all the way from the lungs up to the glottis and is neutered only when she reaches the tip of the tongue. So he's talking about his speech and how it feels feminine until he utters it. In recent years, various experiments have shown that grammatical genders can shape feelings and associations of speakers toward objects around them. In the late 1990s, for example, psychologists compared associations between speakers of German and Spanish. There are many inanimate nouns whose genders in the two languages are reversed. That would be confusing. A German bridge is feminine, for instance, but el puente is masculine in Spanish. And the same goes for clocks, apartments, forks, newspapers, pockets, shoulders, stamps, tickets, violins, the sun, the world, and love. So that makes me think that they may be able to do some examinations. Do Germans feel different than Spanish people about bridges? On the other hand, an apple is masculine for Germans, but feminine in Spanish. And so are chairs, brooms, butterflies, keys, mountain stars, tables, wars, rain, and garbage. When speakers were asked to grade various objects on a range of characteristics, Spanish speakers deemed bridges, clocks, and violins to have more manly properties, like strength. But Germans also tended to think them, them more slender and elegant. With objects like mountains or chairs, which are he in German but she in Spanish, the effect was reversed. In a different experiment, French and Spanish speakers were asked to assign human voices to various objects in a cartoon. When French speakers saw a picture of fork, la, fourchette, most of them wanted it to speak in a woman's voice. But Spanish speakers, for whom el tenedor is a masculine, preferred a gravelly male voice for it. More recently, psychologists have even shown that gendered languages imprint gender traits for objects so strongly in the mind that these associations obstruct speakers' ability to commit information to memory. That's interesting. I wonder how that plays out.
Of course, all this does not mean that speakers of Spanish or French or German fail to understand that inanimate objects do not really have a biological sex. A German woman rarely mistakes her husband for a hat, and Spanish men are not known to confuse a bed with what might be lying in it. Nonetheless, once gender connotations have been imposed on impressionable young minds, they lead those with gendered munder tongue to see the inanimate world through lenses tinted with associations and emotional responses that English speakers, stuck in their monochrome desert of its, are entirely oblivious to. Okay, so that's interesting. They say its, but that is directly related to kind of how they were talking about in the previous article, an American soldier refers to an Iraqi prisoner as it. Interesting connection. So that's another thing that we do whenever we read, particularly when we're reading paired texts, is to really think about and keep that other text kind of in the background about how each idea or thesis would influence or inform the other. So I just read, um, this is a long sentence. Nonetheless, once gender connect connotations have been imposed on impressionable young minds, they lead those with the gendered mothered tongue to see the inanimate world through lenses tinted with associations and emotional responses that English speakers, stuck in their mon monochrome desert of its, are entirely oblivious to. So we don't even know it. We don't have those thoughts. Did the opposite genders of bridge in German and Spanish, for example, have the effect on the design of bridges in Spain and Germany? Do the emotional maps imposed by a gender system have a higher level behavioral consequences for our everyday life? Do they shape tastes, fashions, habits, and preferences in the societies concerned? It reminds me of um, when I taught at Eastridge, the, the boys from the Asian countries would often pick the pink coats and the pink backpacks and materials. And part of it was because the way their culture viewed that color was not as feminine. It was um, a different connotation. At the current state of our knowledge about the brain, this is not something that can be easily measured in a psychology lab, but it wouldn't be surprising if they didn't. The area where the most striking evidence for our influence of language on thought has come to light is the language of space, how we describe the orientation of the world around us. Suppose you want to give someone directions for getting to your house. You might say, after the traffic light, take the first left, then the second right and then you'll see the white house in front of you. Our door is on the right. Well, if somebody told me that, I'd be confused. But in theory, you could also say, after the traffic lights, drive north, and then on the second crossing, drive east, and you'll see a white house directly on the east. Ours is the southern door. Well, I probably wouldn't get there either. These two set of directions may describe the same route, but they rely on different systems of coordinates. The first uses egocentric coordinates, which depend on our own bodies, a left-right axis and a front-back axis, 
orthogonal to it. The second system uses fixed geographic directions, which do not rotate with us whenever we turn. We find it useful to use geographic directions when hiking in the open countryside, for example. But the egocentric coordinates completely dominate our speech when we describe small-scale spaces. We don't say, when you get out of the elevator, walk south and then take the second door to the east. The reason the egocentric system is so dominant in our language is that it feels so much easier and more natural. After all, we always know where behind or in front of us is. We don't need a map or a compass to work it out. We just feel it because the egocentric coordinates are based directly on our own bodies and our own immediate visual fields. But then a remote Australian Aboriginal tongue, Guju Yemithir from north of Queensland turned up. And with it came the astounding revelation that not all languages conform to what have always been taken as simply natural. In fact, Guju Yim Ithir doesn't make any use of egocentric coordinates at all. The anthropologist John Haviland and later the linguist Stephen Levinson have shown that Guju Yim Ithir does not use words like left or right, in front of or behind, to describe the position of objects. I'm wondering what they do use. Whenever we would use the egocentric system, the Guju Yimithir rely on cardinal directions. If they want you to move over on the car seat to make room, they'll say, move a bit to the east. They'll tell you exactly where they left something in your house. They'll say, I left it on the southern edge of the western table. Wow. Or they would warn you to look out for that big ant just north of your foot. Even when shown a film on television, they gave descriptions of it based on the orientation of the screen. If the television was facing north and the man on the screen was approaching, they said that he was coming northward. When these peculiarities of Guju Yimithir were uncovered, they inspired a large-scale research project into the language of space. And as it happens, Guju Yimithir is not a freak occurrence. Languages that rely primarily on geographical coordinates are scattered around the world, from Polynesia to Mexico, from Nambia to Bali. For us, it may seem the height of absurdity for a dance teacher to say, now raise your north hand and move your south leg eastward. But the joke would be lost on some of the Canadian-American musicologist Colin McPhee, who spent several years on Bali in the 1930s, recalls a boy who showed great talent for dancing as there was no instructor in the child's village, McPhee arranged for him to stay with a teacher in a different village. But when he came to check on the boy's progress, after a few days, he found the boy dejected and the teacher exasperated. 
It was impossible to teach that boy anything because he simply did not understand any of the instructions. When told to take three steps to the east or bend southwest, he didn't know what to do. The boy would not have had the least trouble with these directions in his own village, but because the landscape in the new village was entirely unfamiliar, he became disoriented and confused. Why didn't the teachers use different instructions? He probably he would probably have replied that taking saying take three steps forward or bend backward would be at the height of absurdity. So different languages certainly make us speak about space in very different ways. But does this necessarily mean that we have to think about space differently? Now red lights should be flashing because even if a language doesn't have a word for behind, this doesn't necessarily mean that its speakers wouldn't be able to understand the concept. Instead, we should look for the possible consequences of what geographic languages oblige their speakers to convey. In particular, we should be on the lookout for what habits of mind might develop because of the necessity of specifying geographic directions all the time. In order to speak a language like Guju Yimathir, you need to know where the cardinal directions are at each and every moment of your waking life. You need to have a compass in your mind that operates all the time, day and night, without lunch, breaks, or weekends off, since otherwise you would not be able to impart the most basic information or understand what people around you are saying. Indeed, speakers of geographic languages seem to have an almost superhuman sense of orientation. Regardless of visibility conditions, regardless of whether they are thick in the forest or in an open plain, whether outside or indoors or even in caves, whether stationary or moving, they have a spot-on sense of direction. They don't look at the sun and pause for a moment of calculation before they say, there's an ant just to the north of your foot. They simply feel where north, south, west, and east are. Just as people with perfect pitch feel what each note is without having to calculate the intervals. There is a wealth of stories about what to us may seem like incredible feats of orientation, but for speakers of geographic languages are just a matter of course. One report relates how a speaker of Zetzel from southern Mexico was blindfolded and spun around more than 20 times in a darkened house. Still blindfolded and dizzy, he pointed without hesitation at the geographic directions. <laughs> so now we come to another section that's bolded. So now we need to see how did this work. Now, one of the things that's really powerful to do when periodically throughout your reading is go back and kind of reference the trail of where these bold headings are taking you. So it started out with that intellectual fad comment on page 13, where we learned that Worf made an incredible announcement that was later proven difficult. Then, on page 16 at line 70, 
we see that the train of thought is changing since there is no evidence that any language forbids speakers to think anything. We must discover how it does shape it. Okay, so that's what we're looking there. And so he talked about those theories. And then on page 18, we say, well, is there any evidence of this happening in real life, which we just read about? And now we're at a section for, okay, so it does happen. Now we want to ask the question, how does this work? The convention of communicating with geographic coordinates compel speakers from the youngest age to pay attention to the clues from the physical environment, like the position of the sun, wind, and so on, every second of their lives. Gosh, that's got to change the way they think. And develop an accurate memory of their own changing orientations at any given moment. So everyday communication in a geographic language provides the most intense imaginable drilling in geographic orientation. It has been estimated that as much as one word in 10 in normal Guju Yimthir conversation is north, south, west, or east, often compared, accompanied by precise hand gestures. I'd like to see somebody talking that speaks that language. This habit of constant awareness to the geographic direction is inculcated almost from infancy. Studies have shown that children in such societies start using geographic directions as early as age two and fully master the system by age seven or eight. With such an early and intense drilling, the habit soon becomes second nature, effortless and unconscious. When Guju Yamathir speakers were asked how they knew where North is, they couldn't explain it any more than you can explain how you know where behind is. But there is more to the effects of a geographic language, for the sense of orientation has to extend further in time than the immediate present. If you speak a Guju Yamathir style language, your memories of anything that you might ever want to report will have to be stored with cardinal directions as part of that picture. One Guju Yamathir speaker was filmed telling his friends the story of how in youth he capsized in a shark-infested waters. He and his older and an older person were caught in a storm and their boat tipped over. They both jumped into the water and managed to swim nearly three miles to the shore, only to discover that the missionary for whom they worked was far more concerned at the loss of the boat then relieved at their miraculous escape. Apart from the dramatic content, the remarkable thing about the story was that it was remembered throughout in cardinal directions. The speaker jumped into the water on the western side of the boat, his companion to the east side of the boat. They saw a giant shark swimming north, and so on. Perhaps the cardinal directions were just made up for the occasion? Well, quite by chance, the same person was filmed some years later telling the same story. The cardinal directions matched exactly in the two tellings. Even more remarkable were the spontaneous hand gestures that accompanied the story. For instance, the direction in which the boat rolled over was gestured in the correct geographic orientation, 
regardless of the direction the speaker was facing in the two films. The section continues on page 28. Psychological experiments have also shown that under certain circumstances, speakers of Guju Yamathir style languages even remember the same reality different from us. There has been heated debate about the interpretation of some of these experiments, but one conclusion that seems compelling is that while we are trained to ignore directional rotations when we commit information to memory, speakers of geographic languages are trained not to do so. One way of understanding this is to imagine that you are traveling with a speaker of such a language and staying in a large chain style motel with a corridor upon corridor of identical looking doors. Your friend is staying in the room opposite yours. And when you go into his room, you'll see an exact replica of yours. Same bedroom door on the left, the same mirrored wardrobe on the right, the same main room with the same bed on the left, the same curtains down, drawn behind it, the same desk next to the wall on the right. Yeah, I'm getting it. So the same room, the same television set on the left corner of the desk, and the same telephone on the right. In short, you have seen the same room twice, but when your friend comes into your room, he will see something quite different from this because everything is reversed north side south. In his room, the bed was on the south, while in yours is in the north, while in yours it is in the south. The telephone that is in his room in the west is now in the east, and so on. So while you will see and remember the same room twice, a speaker of a geographic language will see and remember two different rooms. It is not easy for us to conceive how Guju Yamathir speakers experience the world with a crisscrossing of cardinal directions imposed on any mental picture and a piece of geographic memory. Nor is it easy to speculate about how geographic languages affect areas of experience other than spatial orientation, whether they influence the speaker's sense of identity, for instance, or bring about a less egocentric outlook on life. But the one piece of evidence is telling. If you saw a Guju Yumthir speaker pointing at himself, you would naturally assume he meant to draw attention to himself. In fact, he is pointing at a cardinal direction that happens to be behind his back. While we are always at the center of the world, and it would never occur to us that pointing in the direction of our chest would mean anything other than to draw attention to ourselves, a Guju Yimathir speaker points through himself as, he were, as if he were thin air and his own existence were irrelevant. I think that's the most powerful example that we've read yet. Okay, so we just read the section on how that works, and they described that geographical orientation and the way people think about themselves. Now we're at a new section that ends the text about other ways that it works. In what other ways might the language we speak influence our experience of the world? Recently, it has been demonstrated in a series of ingenious experiments that we even perceive colors through the lens of our mother tongue. I've often wondered that if the gold I see is 
the same gold that you see. There are radical variations in the way languages carve up the spectrum of visible light. For example, green and blue are distinct colors in English, but are considered shades of the same color in many languages. I did not know that. So that's weird to think about the sky and the trees being a shade of the same color. They seem so separate to me. And it turns out that the colors that our language routinely obliges us to treat as a distinct can refine our purely visual sensitivity to certain color differences in reality so that our brains are trained to exaggerate the distance between the shades of color if these have different names in our language. As strange as it may sound, our experience of a Chagall painting actually depends, to some extent, on whether our language has a word for blue. And so I would challenge you right now to go ahead and Google um, a Chagall painting and see what you think about in terms of blue as you look at it. In coming years, researchers may also be able to shed light on the impact of language on more subtle areas of perception. For instance, some languages, like Metsus in Peru, oblige their speakers, like the finickiests of lawyers, to specify exactly how they came to know the facts they are reporting. You cannot simply say, as in English, an animal passed here. You have to specify using a different verbal form, whether this was directly experienced, you saw the animal approaching, passing, inferred, you saw footprints, conjectured, animalies generally passed there at this time of day, hearsay, or somebody told you, or such. Well, that's a lot to think about. If I was trying to communicate what was happening to verify how I knew it. If a statement is reported with the incorrect evidentiality, it is considered a lie. <laughs> so for instance, you ask a mastus man how many wives he has, unless he can actually see his wives at that very moment, he would have to answer in the past tense and would say something like, there were two last time I checked. <laughs> After all, Given that the wives are not present, he cannot be absolutely certain that one of them hasn't died or run off with another man since last he saw them, even if this was only five minutes ago. So he cannot report to it, it as a certain fact in the present tense. Does the need to think constantly about epistemology in such careful and sophisticated manner inform the speaker's outlook on life or their sense of truth and causation? When our experimental tools or less blunt, such questions will be amenable to empirical study. Yeah, I think sometimes, too, that um, this helps people understand when they're communicating with somebody of another culture, of another language, that you have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what they really mean. For many years, our mother tongue was claimed to be a prison house that constrained our capacity for reason. Once it turned out there was no evidence for such claims, this was taken as proof that of all cultures think in fundamentally the same way. 
but surely it is a mistake to overestimate the importance of abstract reasoning in our lives. After all, how many daily decisions do we make on the basis of deductive logic compared by those guided by gut feeling, intuition, emotions, impulse, or practical skills? The habits of mind that our culture has instilled in us from infancy shape our orientation to the world and our emotional responses to the objects we encounter, and their consequences probably go far beyond what has been experimentally demonstrated so far. They may also have a marked impact on our beliefs, values, and ideologies. We may not know as yet how to measure those consequences directly or how to assess their contribution to a cultural or political misunderstandings. But at first step toward understanding one another, we can do better than pretending we all think the same. One of my favorite questions, as you know, is how did this change challenge or confirm your thinking and beliefs? And so the sentence right here that your language and the consequences of it have a marked impact on our belief, values, and ideologies, ideal ideologies. Um, in reference to the political and cultural understandings and misunderstandings, seems like a pretty good thing to think about in terms of are we understood and do we understand? <laughs>